Hello everyone. It's been a big week for many around the world, especially for the UK, as they have a new prime minister and of course a new monarch due to the death of Queen Elizabeth II yesterday. And um, you know, her death has has I think is going to continue to create ripples around the world. Uh, and not just for the 56 nations that are part of the Commonwealth. I had no idea that many nations were part of the Commonwealth until I looked it up. Um, and of course, you know, Australia, uh, which is part of the Commonwealth, it's going to have um, ripple effects and lots of people and possibly future laws might be impacted um, by her passing. Her life and legacy is a reminder to us all the power of one person to impact nations and generations. We've been exploring God's mission through biblical history. And so far we've explored God's mission through the fall, how when humanity, oh sorry, through creation first, how when God created humanity in his image, he created us to be in loving relationship with him and each other and the earth, the environment. And then we explored how humanity uh, rebelled against that order and uh, that kind of loving relationship. And when humanity violated those boundaries, um, God, through the fall, provided a way to be redeemed. And so God's mission through the fall was for humanity's redemption. We explored God's mission through judgment, how God respects free choice of every human being. And, of course, there are consequences, natural consequences for our choices. But through the judgment of those natural consequences and, and him not shielding us from those consequences, God's mission is to bring us to repentance, healing, and reconnection. Most recently, uh, Roy explored God's mission through families, how God has called generations to join him in his mission to bring about such redemption for mankind. Now today, if I were to follow the biblical timeline, I would be talking about um, uh, you know, the patriarchs, etc. But I wanted to kind of jump ahead, so excuse me for a moment for skipping ahead. But I wanted to explore today, um, in today's part one, and there will be part two. Um, so I wanted to begin exploring God's mission through nations. We'll come back eventually to the narratives found um, in the rest of Genesis. So today I want to look at part one, which is examining the, how God's mission has worked specifically through the nation of ancient Israel and how God chose that nation for a specific purpose. And then next time I'm going to look at how God has worked through other ancient nations and how possibly he might be working through our nations today. And so that's going to be an interesting, dicey one. Now, many think of, um, you know, nations, God working through nations in the New Testament. So when we, when we think about God kind of giving out his good news to the whole world, many of us often turn to the Great Commission found in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. We might have heard it before. This is when Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So you might have heard this before, and you might have heard of that that phrase, the Great Commission, right? This idea that God has uh, commissioned us and called us to go out to all the nations. But did you know that the foundation for the Great Commission was actually first given to Abraham? 
the very first um, kind of father of the nations. And so 2,000 years before the birth of Christ, Abraham, or Abram as he was then known, was a man living in Ur in ancient Mesopotamia. So that teal, bluish color there is Ur, um, which is loaded, located in modern-day Iraq. And excavations in the 1930s have uncovered the ruins of a temple and royal tombs built around the time of Abraham. And you, and you can actually go visit today. So if you're ever in Iraq and um, have an opportunity to go visit the ancient site of Ur, you can do so and see the, the, the um, hometown of, of Abram. Now, as Roy preached about last week, God called Abram to move from Ur. Let me see, James, if I can have priority of the screen. Um, no, try again. No, not working. Hold on, let me try. Nope, that's all right. Is it working? Ah, thank you. All right, so here, it, uh, er, here is Ur. Sorry, <laughs> I'm not just stuttering here. Um, here's Ur, and so Abram travels uh, with his family from here, goes up to the uh, ancient side of Babylon, and travels eventually to, at that time, the, the land of Canaan, which today is modern-day Israel. And so... That was God's mission for Abram and his descendants to, to settle in this unknown land. And God had promised Abram this uh, calling. He had said, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all people on earth will be blessed through you. God repeats and expands this promise again in Genesis chapter 2, verses 8, 17 and 18. I will surely bless and make, bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. So we find out here that Abraham is given this promise that his descendants are going to become a great nation. And God says, hey, you and your descendants are going to be a blessing to others. So not only will I bless you, but you're actually going to be blessing others. How? In three ways. He says, first, I will make your name great. In other words, your reputation, right, your story, your legacy, it's going to bless others. Secondly, through your interactions with others, those who have positive interactions with you will receive uh, a direct blessing from God. So it's not even the indirect blessing of being inspired by someone's life, but it's a direct blessing from God that they will receive. And then the third way that God bless others through Abraham is this incredible promise that one of his descendants is going to bless all the nations. And we'll come back to this idea in a moment. So the question becomes, okay, when we look at the story of Abraham and his descendants, was he, were they blessings to others? And Roy shared last time how there are plenty of times when they weren't, right? When they were acting out of faith, uh, sorry, when they were acting in fear instead of faith, then they were definitely not a blessing to others. However, when Abraham and his, and his descendants acted in faith and obedience to God, they were an incredible blessing to others. For example, Abraham actually interceded for the kingdom and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah twice. 
Did you know that? The first time he actually intercedes for them because um, there's a coalition of kings that attack Sodom and Gomorrah and surrounding lands. And their people and their possessions are taken away. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah actually come to Abraham asking for help. And Abraham personally goes out with his men and fight against the coalition of kings and bring back the, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their possessions and restores everything back to uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham intercedes a second time for them, this time when God is, has come to investigate um, the, the wickedness of the people. Abraham intercedes for them and says, God, if there are 50 righteous people, will you spare those cities? And God says, yeah, I will. And Abraham says, okay, what, what if God, there's only 40? Will you save them for their sake? And God's like, of course. And Abraham says, what if there's only 30 righteous people in those entire cities? God, will you spare those cities? And God says, yes. And Abraham says, what if there's only 20? And God says, yeah, I'll, sa I'll save them. And then Abraham says, what if there's only 10? And I can imagine him kind of counting, I've got my cousin Lot, and then my nephew Lot, you know, he's got a wife, they've got two kids. He's like, 10, surely there are 10. And, and, and God says, if there are 10 righteous people, I will spare the entire city for their sake. I think Abraham really believed that there would be 10. Sadly, he was mistaken. He, he, might, he should have gone down to like two <laughs> or even one. Um, but that's a story for another time. As for the nation that later formed from Abraham's descendants, they became known as the nation of Israel. Were they a blessing to the other nations? Once again, yes and no. God reminded the Israelites after he had rescued them from slavery he said in Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasure possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now this concept of being chosen by God, it's something that we'll tease out more in our discussion time, but we often think of being chosen as receiving special favor. But here, God is saying, you are chosen because I'm giving you a specific mission. He says, yes, you're my treasured possession, but he's, he kind of reminds me, but really, the whole earth is mine. But here is a specific mission for you. You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Well, what does that mean? Priests were mediators between God and everyone else. And so when God says, I want you, the nation of Israel, to be a kingdom of priests, he's saying, I want you to mediate the relationships between others and me. I want you to bring other people, other nations, into a relationship with me. Also, when he says, I want you to be a, a holy nation, what does that mean? Holiness in the Bible, you know, when we think of holiness today, we think of almost like a negative connotation, like a holier-than-thou or someone with a little halo around their head, you know, or someone who, like, is very self-righteous. But actually, when you look at what the, what the word holiness meant in the Bible, it simply means, it simply, man, sorry. It simply means um, being set apart for a purpose and being different, being unique, and specifically being like God, because God alone is holy. And so when God says, I want you to be a holy nation, he was saying, I want you to reflect my character. 
And one way that they were going to do that is is through um, God's laws. So he says, Israel, I have chosen you to receive my laws, my precepts, my principles, so that when you live those out, right? And these these principles are so countercultural to what all the other nations are doing. And so when you live out these countercultural principles, other nations will see through your model example what goodness looks like, what generosity looks like, what kindness and equality and, and respect of all persons looks like. And for example, I'm just gonna um, give you an example. Hold on, I've lost my place in my notes now. Um, I'll come back to the example. It's in Leviticus chapter 19. But he gives them these laws, and he gives them his uh, his sanctuary system to show them the plan of redemption, not only for their blessing. Sure, it's gonna bless them, but really so that they can also bless others by relaying that message and sharing that message with others. Israel was supposed to share their testimony of how God was working through and in them. When God rescued them out of Egypt, it was a powerful testimony. They walked through the Red Sea. Right? What, what better story um, could anyone else have in that time of how God cares about the downtrodden? Right? A bunch of slaves, not the mighty monarchs and, and the kingdoms of, for example, Egypt with their, with their amazing pyramids and, and their great power, right? Or the kingdom of Assyria. No, none of those. A group of slaves. God chooses the lowest of lowest in order to show that that's who he cares about. He cares about all, but he especially cares for those that the rest of the world mistreated and would have dismissed. Through their testimony, the other nations would be able to see God's glory and would want to join and get to know that God. For example, in Exodus chapter 12, verse 38, it says that the Egyptians, many of the Egyptians joined the Israelites. So when um, God sent the ten plagues, they were all an opportunity for people to see the power of God and to repent of their mistreatment of the slaves. And through that process, many of the Egyptians did actually join the Israelites when they exited out of Egypt. Later, when God also dried up the Jordan River so that this new generation could cross over, their leader Joshua said, The Lord your God did this to the Jordan, uh, what he had done to the Red Sea, when he dried it up before us until we had crossed over. He did this so that all the people of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. You see, notice how Joshua doesn't say, God did this for you because you are just so special and you've been so good and, you know, you deserve this. No, he says, God did this for you, yes, because he cares about you, but also so that the other nations can see how powerful God is. The book of Psalms regularly invited God's people to praise his name so that other nations could know about God. Psalm 96, verse 2 and 3 are just one example. Sing to the Lord, praise his name, proclaim his salvation day after day, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all people. I I, um, talked about the laws of God being a way that uh, the obedience to these laws, being a way that the Israelites could share the blessing of God. These laws were not only the moral laws, but they were ceremonial laws, health laws, civil laws. Showing God's character and redemptive plan. And 
when Solomon was king of Israel, he began his reign faithfully, um, and he followed these laws. And as a result, Israel enjoyed a time of peace and prosperity where surrounding nations were curious. What is the secret to your power? So we have the story of the Queen of Sheba in 1 Kings chapter 10 coming to visit uh, Solomon, coming to observe and ask questions. And it says that when in verse 4, when the Queen of Sheba saw all the wisdom of Solomon and the palace he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his officials, the attending servants in their robes, his cupbearers, and the burnt offerings he made at the temple of the Lord, she was overwhelmed. See, not only did she observe how he organized his cabinet, how he led his nation, not only did she, did she look at the political structure and the architecture and everything you know, that was noble and grand about Israel, but it says that she also observed Solomon worship God. Solomon made a point to, to show her into the temple and to make the burnt off, uh, offerings to God to explain what that meant to her. And after she observes all this, she says to the king, The report I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true. But I did not believe these things until I came and saw with my own eyes. Indeed, not even half was told me. In wisdom and wealth, you have far exceeded the report I heard. How happy your people must be. How happy your officials who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Praise be to the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel. Because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. You see, because Solomon was following God, leaders of other nations are praising God. That's an incredible thing. Israel was to be this ethical model for the nations. And 500 years before Solomon, Moses understood this. And at the end of his life, he told this to the Israelites. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 to 8. See, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me, so that you may follow them into the land you are entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully. Follow them in the land, uh, sorry, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations, who will hear about all these decrees and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them, the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I am setting before you today? There was the laws that God had given to Israel, right? Were not meant to be a burden. It was meant to be a blessing for Israel, but for the surrounding nations to see how the laws are structured, to see how the laws are observed, to see how that impacts community and the people uh, as a nation, as a whole, and say, wow. This is truly wise. We can see the benefits of this. We can see God's, we can praise God as a result of this. The laws lived out would be a counterculture and show the other nations God's principles of equality and compassion. And here's the example that I wanted to show you before. Uh, just one of many. Leviticus chapter 19, verses 9 onwards. God says, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleaning of your harvest. Do not go over the vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native-born. 
Love them as yourself, for you are foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. I want you to just pause and think about the implications of these laws. Okay? In the ancient times, and I would say even today, we don't follow these laws. This was a revolutionary concept. Capitalism and, 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 and ancient nations and modern nations would say, take everything that is due to you, right? Don't let a, uh, a penny um, drop. If that's yours, take it, right? Take and, and take more. But here is God saying, when you are harvesting your crops, don't take everything. Purposefully, intentionally leave some for the poor, for the foreigners, so they can come and they can eat, right? He was setting up a system where it's not about personal gain so much as providing for the needs of others, as well as, you know, of course, there are things you do to harvest your crops. He's talking about equality, right? Not favoring the great, judging fairly. In his laws, he talks about, um, he has whole civil laws set up so that if, if you have uh, committed manslaughter, for example, you are due a fair trial. Okay? These are instances and examples of laws and principles that was based on the idea that all humans are created in the image of God and created equally are foreigners being treated as citizens. Imagine that if we followed that kind of principle today. Sadly, despite the many reminders of Moses, his successor Joshua, and the other prophets and leaders God sent their way, the nation of Israel failed repeatedly to follow these laws and to model God's character. And sadly, the majority of the rest of the Old Testament books narrate the consequences of their failure. It narrates many of the messengers' sad and urgent pleas being disregarded, prophets being thrown in jail, being killed, and God being rejected. Over and over again, God pleads with his people. Here's just an example. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 17. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Verse 23. Your rulers are rebels, partners with thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. And over and over and over again, right? The major prophets, the minor prophets, you will find strutted throughout the Old Testament God's plea for people to turn back to him and to turn back to obeying his laws so that the nation of Israel can be blessed and be a blessing for others. Instead of showcasing God's holiness by being a holy people distinct from other nations, the Israelite leaders and the people adapted the culture and the practices of surrounding nations, including child sacrifices. Their failure to be a holy nation not only kept them from being a blessing to others, but also led to the demise of their own nation. And they were conquered by Assyrians in 722 BC. That was a northern kingdom, and the southern kingdom was conquered by the Babylonians in 589 BC. So this promise that God had given Abram, that he and his descendants, right, the nation that would come from him would be a blessing to all people, it had failed in a large degree. 
How was God was how how would God keep His promise to Abraham when Israel had failed? And this is when we come to the New Testament, Matthew chapter one verse one. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham. And Matthew one goes on to to show how Jesus, a descendant of Abraham, has come to do what Israel had failed to do. To obey God fully, to represent His character, to be a blessing for all nations. When Jesus, as a baby, was taken to the temple, the Holy Spirit inspired a man named Simeon to say, "My eyes have seen your salvation." Luke chapter two, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of your people Israel. At last, he's saying, "Here is the Messiah who's going to bring the glory of Israel, who's going to fulfill that promise given to Abraham that through Israel all nations will be blessed." And and they were. Jesus, throughout his ministry, blessed others, healing people regardless of their national affiliation or ethnic background or socioeconomic status, uplifting the marginalized, and honoring the laws of God. For the widows, for the fatherless, for the poor, he broke cultural boundaries to connect with men, women, children, foreigners, disabled, prostitutes, tax collectors, rulers, servants. But most of all, he was rejected by his own, and he was killed willingly, so that all of humanity, all people, and multitudes from all nations could be saved by faith in him. This verse that is often quoted, John three sixteen and seventeen, for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. This statement of Jesus was made to a man named Nicodemus. And to understand the full impact of this statement, you have to understand that Nicodemus was a ruler of Israel, and what had happened to Israel over time is that before they had disregarded God's laws, they had failed their mission, and their nation had fallen apart. And so, when God, in His mercy, brings the nation of Israel back together, the people and the leaders are now paranoid. And so they kind of swing the other way, where before they completely disregarded God's laws, now they become really legalistic, where they are clinging to the laws as if the laws are going to save them. And so it is to these people who believe that they are a chosen nation, and that it is only through obedience of of their Mosaic laws and of being a part of the nation of Israel that you can be saved. And this is what they taught. This is what they believed. So here's Nicodemus, who is, you know, a teacher of these things, talking with Jesus. So imagine the shock that Nicodemus would have felt when God turns to Nicodemus and says, "God so loved the world, not just Israel, that whoever whoever believes in Him, right, shall have eternal life." And that is the message that is so countercultural about Jesus, and that redefined then what it meant to be a descendant of Abraham. Galatians chapter three seven to nine tells us: Understand then that those who have faith in Jesus are now the children of Abraham. 
Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance for Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Through Jesus, there is now an adoption of all who believe in him to be called children of Abraham, children of faith, the new Israel. First Peter chapter 2, whoopsie. First uh, Peter chapter 2, verses 4, 5 and onwards. Peter, a follower of Jesus, says, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be, that is that word again, a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. Why? That you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. We are now the church of God, the people of God, the followers of Jesus are now this new chosen nation, this new royal priesthood called to mediate, to bless all nations, to help others get to know God, see his character, and, and join that fellowship. This new Israel is composed of a diversity of backgrounds that is united through Christ. Galatians 3, 26 and 29. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You see, through Jesus, now we understand we are all equal. This, this statement, once again, is such a powerful statement because it was made in the first century to a Greco-Roman world where there were hierarchies of distinctions, right? That if you were a man, that you had more power than a woman. That if you were a, a Roman, then you had more power than um, a Jew. That if you were, you know, a wealthy person, then you would have more power than a poor person. And God comes along and says, in Christ, you are all one and the same. In history, whenever Christians followed this example of Christ and the spirit of Christ, God was glorified and non-believers were blessed. Even if they weren't converted to Christianity, they were blessed by the laws and the principles governing Christianity. Values of equality and dignity of all persons, values of generosity and compassion, values of peace and justice. For example, John Locke, right? The political philosopher who, you know, is the basis for modern democracy today. He was, did you know, a theologian as well. So yes, he wrote treatises about political uh, philosophy, but he wrote theological pieces and articles. And he believed with all his being that all humanity is created equal in the image of God. And it was based on that premise that he created the concept of democracy. The Australian constitution, much like the American and the English constitution, was written from a Christian worldview. One of the writers, um, let me go back. One of the writers, Sir Henry Parks, known as the father of Australia's federation, stated, We are preeminently a Christian people, as our laws, our whole system of jurisprudence, our constitution, are based upon an interwoven 
with our Christian belief. In my last, um, last year, I preached a sermon on is Christianity good? And I shared some examples of how Christianity has inspired significant health and social services throughout the world, such as the establishment of universal health care, free public schools, the abolition of slavery, prison reform, establishment of orphanages, and international aid and relief. But we also have to acknowledge that there have been times when Christianity and Christian leaders and Christian nations have claimed the Great Commission as an excuse to exploit and destroy. The colonization of many people, groups, and nations resulted from a belief of superiority in culture and the idea of a divine right of dispossession. Racism and discrimination, sexism and homophobia have resulted from a claim to Christianity without a submission to Christ. Missionaries, so they may have had good intentions, have often done much harm to the indigenous communities. For example, in Australia, from the 1860s to the 1970s, the government, welfare bodies, as well as churches, forcibly removed many Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children from their families under an assimilation policy. And of course, these children became known as the Stolen Generation. And since then, the National Council of Churches in Australia has apologized for the church's part in this injustice and, is, had, and has committed themselves to educating the churches of their involvement in history and addressing allegations of abuse in church institutions today. We can and we must do better. And it starts by having faith in Jesus. Not faith in our own culture, because all cultures have good and bad. Not, not faith in our own education, because our worldviews can be flawed. Not faith in anything else that are human constructs, but faith only in Jesus. Who he is, what he has done, what he will do. Faith that is upside-down way of love and service and humility and sacrifice are all worth it because it leads not only to our own blessing, but for the blessing of all nations. Peter, once again, the follower of Jesus, you know, he hated the fact that Israel at that time was occupied by the Romans. They had to pay taxes to the Romans. The Roman soldiers mistreated the Jews. And Peter had a fiery temper, so he hated that. But he learned by following Jesus that the way, the best way to overturn an unjust system is actually to be humble, to love, to serve. He goes on to say in 1 Peter chapter 2, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as a supreme authority or to the governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. In your hearts, reveal Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. 
keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. You see, when we think of evangelism or mission, we often think about um, the negative connotations of someone being really obnoxious in their efforts to convert someone. But Peter is saying, actually, God's mission for us right, is to be a blessing to the nations. It's about being respectful. It's about being gentle. It's about doing right. It's about living our lives in such a way that other people are actually blessed by us, blessed by knowing us, blessed by how we how we do things and that they actually come to us and say, hey, there's something about you and there's something about the way you live that is attractive, that is a blessing to me, right? There's something about you that when I'm with you, I feel peace. And 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 when they come to you and ask you, what is the, why do you, are you like this, right? What motivates you? What, how is it that you can have peace and patience in the midst of suffering and challenges, and that is when you have that answer for the hope that is in you, right? Peter says, have that answer ready. Don't hide the fact that you're a Christian. Don't hide the fact that it is Christ who is motivating you. But do it in a respectful and gentle way with a clear conscience. I like that part because it's, it's implying that we need to follow God's ways if we want to really establish and glorify God. When we join these early followers of Jesus in inviting others to the story of God's love for all people, we are also living out of our identity as God's chosen people, those whose special purpose has always been to extend God's inclusive love to many. This is by Carissa Quinn. You see, if we are judgmental and cruel and selfish and greedy, people are not going to be asking us for the hope that is in our hearts. When we reflect God's character of compassion, generosity, justice, then they'll come and ask us. When they are blessed because of what we have to share, that is when we are truly participating in God's mission. So my question to you is, who can you bless this week? How can you be a blessing to others? What gifts has God given you to use to serve others. Now I'll end on this passage in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7 to 11. The end of all things is near. Therefore be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To whom, to him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. I want to invite you to sing with us our closing song for today, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. <laughs>